0: welcome to the bagwell center podcast this podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the bagwell center for the study of markets and economic opportunity at kennesaw state university the bagwell center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation entrepreneurial activity economic prosperity and improved human welfare through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coleskennesawedu slash econ uh,
1: Thank you very much, Tim, and, uh, for the invitation, and uh Uh, for the opportunity to discuss uh, some of the topics that are close to my research about uh, conflict. So, uh, I put the quote by former U.S. President Eisenhower. So, in 1953, sort of about uh, a little bit towards the end of the Korean War, and he, he was also the commanding general of the U.S. forces in Europe during World War II. So he, says, uh, he said, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fire signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hope of its children. This is not a way of life at all in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. So, this is an economic argument that, that war and arming have really high economic costs and they are economically important. So the question is why is there war? Why is there conflict? Right. The topic of today's. So what I'm going to do is uh, discuss them um, uh, conflict among uh, individuals, organized groups or states. Briefly discuss why there is conflict. Uh, conflict is costly. Both for the resources devoted to arming even if there is no actual war, and for the, the destruction, and so-called collateral damage that war can bring about if it becomes a hot war. So the two questions there of why is there a conflict, the two subsidiary questions. Uh, why arm in the first place? Why expend resources on guns? And why this arming can vary across different settings? And the second subsidiary question is, why fight if you can maybe make a deal under the threat of conflict, the threat of war, given that you have destruction and collateral damage? So those are the two questions that we examine. And uh, what I'm going to take, the the viewpoint I'm going to take is an economic or rational choice approach approach based on models or modeling but I will not present the models here because they are too sort of too specialized to talk about in it. And I will talk about define conflict in the first place, talk about the course of conflict a little bit, and then look at the two subsidiary questions on why arm and why fight, and then provide some caveats about what this approach might help us and might not help us with. So, uh, Jack Hirschleifer, uh, former professor at UCLA, uh, said there are two ways of making a living. Producing and trading, which is the traditional way that economics looks at. But also there is another way of making a living, a second way of making a living, which is taking things away from others. You can go and take stuff away from others. And that implies then that you defend, you also, even if you don't want to take things away from others, you feel like you have to defend against, against others taking things away from you. So that sort of looking then at this second way of making a living is uh, what we'll be talking about today. Uh, there are other economists through the past that have talked about this trade-off, that you have Edgeworth, who was one of the first uh, uh, British economists who, when economics came about, talked about war and contract. And Pareto talked about uh, there are two different ways of efforts of men the production or transformation of economic goods, or the appropriation, taking away things away from others. Right? So it's not, it's always been there in economics, but has not been emphasized at all in traditional economic thinking and modeling. So let me first define conflict in uh, sort of economic terms. What do we mean by conflict Uh, uh, in a very broad way? Uh, It's first of all when two or more parties, uh, the inputs that they use, the costly inputs that they use, are adversarially combined against one another. Again. In cases of, uh, normally in economics, the inputs, the efforts, are collaboratively, cooperatively combined. You have production, you have different factors of production, putting things together through a production function, or you have uh, trading, or in other ways they are collaborative. But in the case of conflict, they are adversarially combined. So. I get my guns, you get your guns, and we're going against each other, right? They are adversarially sort of going one against one another now but you have sports right? That's a case where you do have the adversarial combination of inputs as well. You have two teams going against each other. That's not what we would call pure conflict. That's a case where you have. Positive externalities to third parties. In the case of sports, you have the fans value what you are doing more than the efforts of the two sides, right? it's, uh, It might be a zero-sum game between the sports teams, but not the reason we have. You have very big positive externalities to fans, right? So, that's not a case of pure conflict. Pure conflict is a case of where you can have cold wars or uh, hot wars in which you don't have benefits to anybody else except you have potential costs among themselves. So, so conflict and wars is the main example of that kind of conflict. Uh, There are other things that happen, lobbying and rent-seeking, litigation, Uh, But a lot of those things are actually uh, not cases of pure conflict. Uh, You have, um, uh, so what you have in instruments of conflict, you can have violence, right, with guns and sort of things that you have in war. You can have also persuasion, you have political kind of conflicts, right. But in those cases, political conflict has these positive externalities in improving political decision making, economic decision making and generally sort of informational uh, things that come out of it. Sometimes you have persuasion and violence being also sort of involved together especially in early kind of uh, uh, democracies or things like that. So how important is economically conflict? So military expenditures are about, on average, about 2.4% of world GDP in 1920, and it varies from less than 1% to more than 10%. Well, 2.4%, I mean, is greater than the growth of certainly countries in the West, but for a lot of countries it's So if you could devote these resources for consumption and investment might have been much better. I mean, this is what sort of Eisenhower talks about. But defense expenditures for external enemies is only one part of the costs. You have internal security costs of ordinary crime, police, others. You have distributional and social conflicts. You have civil wars in more than third of the countries of the world with uh, 20 million deaths. Other direct economic costs. You have lots of stuff that is going on. Other costs other than military expenditures that are directed against external uh, enemies. Uh, You have sort of things about uh, property rights about land. You have other welfare costs of conflict, for example, that have been estimated to be 9% of consumption uh, beyond sort of defense expenditures. Uh, And you have sort of in the U.S. the cost of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars was estimated to be 4 to 6 trillion dollars as of 10 years ago and he has been higher than that. Right? 4 to 6 trillion dollars that's sort of uh, uh, something like a third of our GDP. And uh, Bill Mess has uh, even sort of thinks there are What is called ghost budgets, uh, there are about, since uh, 9-11, there are about an average of more than $100 billion a year, more than $2 trillion that the US has spent on military expenditures that are beyond the uh, defense budget, they are the overseas contingency operations that have no. Accountability from Congress—you can—the the military has spent them on contractors, on bribes, on sort of corruption or whatever, just without without any accountability. In addition to the fact that the uh, Pentagon, the Defense Department, does not, uh, cannot be audited even for its ordinary expenditures, right? So Eisenhower, if Eisenhower were to uh, uh, sort of come back to life, uh, probably he would be horrified by this. Right? These are pretty huge expenditures. And the ordinary way of uh, accounting, sort of uh, in uh, uh, what you, uh, you learn in uh, textbook economics cannot accommodate this type of analysis very easily. So the first question is why ARM? Why sort of uh, get guns? Well, it's because the second way of making a living uh, to take things away from others or defend against taking things away from others. But uh, then the question is how do you limit arming and violence? How far can you sort of uh, go? Well, there is one of the problems is what is called the problem of commitment not to arm or fight. You are unable to write enforceable co- contracts. Contracts that will be uh, enforced by courts and the police that you say you don't arm. Then right? you do that. Uh, so then how do you limit then un- arming? And uh, how do societies uh, limit, uh, especially modern states, they have managed reasonably well to reduce, sort of within themselves, to I- I reduce the arming and and uh, taking away as much as we can. So how do you limit arming? Well, uh, we can go back to uh, sort of the simplest formulation is to think about uh, Selling a Nobel Prize winner in economics in the strategy of conflict, a very uh, sort of uh, seminal book, uh, made the following kind of hypothetical uh, uh, distinction between a cross my heart society, a society in which if you cross your heart, you make a perfect commitment not to arm, not to, not to take things away from others or well, due to moral beliefs or whatever, it's a hypothetical society versus a Hobbesian jungle where of all, of war, of all against all. Well, if the two societies were to be identical in terms of their economic potential, which would be actually richer? The Hobbesian jungle? Well, they would have to spend all these resources into guns and knives and sort of fighting and destroying uh, and everything else. But the Cross My Heart Society everybody in that society would be a saint. They would not take things away from others. And that would be a a harmonious sort of society that spends nothing on guns. So they would be very different. Well actual societies do not approach these two extremes. But then what are the mechanisms that limit arming? Well, norms, conventions, moral beliefs do limit arming. The world religions over the past two and a half thousand years, especially those that emphasize a single god or uh, salvation religions that, you know, there is an afterlife, sort of disciplines people into not getting too much into guns and sort of expending resources on that. And especially for pre-modern societies that's sort of very, has been very important. Uh, But also by modern states provide sort of uh, internal security by having a legal system, police, and having external security, sort of defense and the modern claim to the so-called legitimate monopoly of violence that is not usually monopoly everywhere, but reasonably sort of reduces internal conflicts within modern states. So you have legal and political mechanisms in addition to norms, conventions, and moral beliefs that reduce these types of conflict of Armenia. There is still anarchy at the international level, that there is no Nobody at the top of the world that makes sort of uh, uh, adjudicates disputes, but then you have among states, you have norms, institutions, and international law that is pretty fragmented, bilateral, multilateral agreements that reduce arming and conflicts at the international level. So, and those things are the sort of things. But, nevertheless, of course, you do have 2.4% of GDP expended on, on military expenditures. So, the question then is uh, still, the second question then is, why fight? Given that you have army, how do you think about it? And I will just uh, uh, think about a model that is in words and uh, think about a potential conflictual setting and where you have two sides and they make choices between guns and butter. Right? Butter can be one good or it can be a combination of goods, it could be GDP for uh, consumption purposes where guns are part of what you put into military expenditures, for example. Right? Uh, What the guns do, they increase your winning, if conflict were to take place, your your chance of winning, your winning probability, or or how much battery you can keep away from your adversary. It's also under the threat of conflict. It could be, uh, it increases your bargaining advantage over uh, your adversaries, possibly. Uh, So, with production choices of uh, those two guides, then the two sides can either enter into conflict or bargain of how do you divide uh, the batter. And you can think of this protocol repeated year after year after year. And we can use uh, some diagrams to think about these issues. If you have the two sides, A and B, and you measure their welfare or utility sort of along these lines, and you can think of point D as being the expected welfare, the expected utility of each side if they were to fight it out for any given choice of guns. Whereas the two lines here we can think of as utility possibilities, frontiers. The first, the, the outer one, is the one that takes place without guns. That's sort of the possibility, that, that's the nirvana world of no fighting, the, the cross-my-heart society, whereas the case of uh, the lower here involves when you have D, when you spend resources that you could have spent on butter, you spend it on guns, and therefore you reduce the utility possibilities frontier into the lower one and you can uh, sort of shift your both the d you know your choice between guns and butter change both the disagreement point the point of, of you will get war and uh, what would happen if you were to bargain and sort of solve and and reduce and divide the butter according to the winning probability so what happens if if a for example increases their guns then they move their disagreement point, what they would get under conflict, into this D instead of that D, and reduce what B would get. Right? But at the same time, it shifts the frontier in various ways because of how butter changes from one to another. So the question is, this D, is this D possible to be outside this? The frontiers? It might be, and we will see the reasons for it, although I haven't drawn it here. Right? But first of all, there are strong, normally you would have strong incentives to bargain and settle in the shadow of conflict. So, you have destruction and the cost brought about war that make this these deeds to be inside any of the frontiers that you have. You have risk aversion. War is uncertain and therefore I want to sort of not make sure that I don't, you know, I I would like to maybe have less than I would get maybe if I were to win in exchange for that and make a bargain and sort of divide the butter in a way that uh, don't have war. You can have pessimism. You can have what is called other uh, reasons for uh, diminishing returns, decreasing returns to scale in production, complementarities, sacrificing the gains from trade. Sometimes if you, if you were to <coughs> get into conflict, actual conflict, you will not be able to have any gains from trade with your adversary. Right? Those are big costs. Yet, you still have fighting, you have wars, both civil wars and international wars throughout history and why those things happen. Well so one sort of uh, something that has been economists have been talking about for some time is what is called asymmetric or incomplete information. You don't know exactly what the preferences, the capabilities, uh, the objectives of your potential adversaries are. So, in some cases it might be rational when the adversary is strong that you think they are likely weak. You make a calculated risky uh, choice and if the, you think the chances of your adversary being weak are very high, one side might go to war. But then they discover that the other side is stronger than uh, they thought, and you have a problem. But still, you have uh, fighting taking place. Uh, You can have optimism, either because of an attitude towards risk or uh, of the estimated probabilities of victory and uh, defeat or uh, stalemate. You can have risk-seeking preferences that you have in ordinary sort of economics. That you have, uh, you have uh, gamblers, uh, and you have also, and this is not uh, what is called rational choice, different models about how the world works, uh, with unawareness of one other's different models. Sometimes you have this, uh, you have a, a type of asymmetric information. But it has to do about how you think about the world. So those are somehow traditional ways of uh, why (coughs) you might have uh, thinking about how war might come about from those reasons. You have economic reasons like indivisibilities and increasing returns to scale in production. There might be a valley that cannot be defended, cannot be shared for defensive purposes and only one side can have it. You have uh, what is called increasing returns to scale in production and it makes sense, you have convexity, so uh, that uh, uh, wh- which makes one side sort of risky, the, the, the benefits from being the winner are too high relative to Uh, 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 to the costs and everything else. Uh, Something that has been discussed a lot, uh, just the inability to commit to write the enforceable contract to levels of arms and to uh, to, to, uh, can lead (coughs) to war when you make it in a dynamic setting especially when you have what is called uh, political scientists have talked about this. You have a declining power facing an ascending power, and the declining power might uh, sort of uh, because it wants to check on the ascending power, and is what is called the Thucydides trap. And you might have war in those situations. What is called also a Thucydides trap. Uh, because Thucydides supposedly talked about it, and this is something also that has been discussed recently uh, in the case of the U.S. versus China, as a possible reason, as a, uh, one reason that you might have. You can have the inability to commit in a, to a bargaining outcome. You know, you make a, uh, so you would have uh, the so-called uh, you would have the uh, the barbarians invading. Uh, uh, the Roman Empire they could be bribed to leave but then what keep after they get the bribe, what keeps them from coming back to ask for more right? so that's sort of one kind of uh, another sort of thing that you have. you rely on uh, you have to make implicit agreements commitments with a barbarian, so to speak, in order to actually sort of have. The viability of these bribes, and uh, those are actually taking place, but in cases they were breaking down, you had this, uh, you did have more wars. The other reason is that who benefits and who loses uh, What if the decision makers about war and peace? benefit more from war than the average member of their constituency and bear a fraction of the cost of warfare. So, as uh, Hoffman has argued, uh, European rulers from the Middle Ages to modern times were involved in incessant warfare. You have rulers, kings and, uh, and knights and others, they were fighting another other forever why were they doing that given that it's very costly well the rulers faced almost no risk in case they lost they very rarely i mean only towards the end of the 18th century rulers uh, nobody was getting killed and moreover they were not even losing their personal possessions as kings they were just might be lose some territory that belonged to the general feudal sort of, uh, and, and right. uh, they were not facing many costs and the benefits were also psychological in some cases, glory, sort of uh, getting a bigger place. Uh, generals and politicians order- ordering soldiers to frontal assaults during the trench warfare in World War I they were not facing costs. I mean, they would have masses of uh, recruits who would just go to the slaughter in order to get a few feet of extra sort of land. They were not facing the cost, except towards the end, some of them were being attacked. The same thing for, uh, it's argued in in the Vietnam War, it was uh, similar and some officers were getting killed by the grants themselves because of that. Uh, So, it's been argued that without a draft, a military draft, that takes everybody indistinguishably, including the, uh, the sons and daughters of politicians, the political leaders have less of an incentive for peace. Because they don't have their sons go to war for them. It's the sort of uh, other people, poorer people who go to war when you don't have a draft. You don't have those things. So that's a probably, I mean it's difficult to assess to what extent this is, but probably a bigger, uh, an important reason. The decision makers face different benefit cost of uh, calculations than those who actually bear the costs of those things. Finally, uh, another reason that you have is um, we talked about uh, identity, sort of something uh, uh, human beings don't derive satisfaction utility just from material goods. They They derive psychological payoffs even from love and friendship but also for belonging to a group uh, belonging to a tribe earlier belonging to a religion belonging to uh, <coughs> to an ethnicity class or believing in an ideology and uh, those things that have been traditionally and rightly so uh, have been uh, causes for conflict because if you have uh, two tribes sort of believing that one sort of area is sacred, they are likely to go to, they're more likely to go to conflict than uh, if they did not have this identity sort of based uh, preferences that you have. Done. And a lot of uh, warfare and uh, civil warfare or international warfare can be blamed on those reasons. You can also have a reverse effect, actually, of conflict enhancing identity in many ways. So there is an argument that French peasants did not become French until they went to World War One and bled for their country or something like that. And generally, for modern nation states, actually since Napoleon, uh, Napoleon's uh, genius was to get People up to Napoleon, armies were professional armies, mercenaries, essentially. Since then, part of the nation state is that you have people fight for their country because they are loyal, they identify with their country. And that was the genius of Napoleon. Anyways, and conflict itself enhances that, that identity it m- makes it more salient and even the American Revolutionary War you can think that uh, it forged it makes sort of Americans feel like they are they have a common sort of thing american okay? and that can be used also for strategic purposes by external actors to try to sort of uh, uh, make uh, uh, differences you know if you have uh, borderline proxy wars and others that can be used for that reason you can think that Ukraine for example is a case where this is happening uh, now Ukrainian identity is becoming more salient the more involves in conflict so, no, there is no single explanation. I mean, there are all these reasons that I've uh, outlined about why you might have conflict, and the question is, it's—is this uh, uh, you? You, you, can exp- you cannot expect to have a single reason for fighting. Normally, you expect multiple reasons, because the wars are so costly, you can have multiple reasons. And you can think of the example of World War I, as a case where still to this day, historians, uh, political scientists, uh, even economists, uh, sociologists discuss what caused World War I. And you have people who say, well, uh, I, having their favorite reasons and they argue there is only one reason, right? Well, no, I mean, usually it doesn't prevent many reasons to be, and it's more, they are more likely to occur, actually, because of that. So, asymmetric information that we talked about has been used a lot, uh, between, especially because there was uncertainty about... Uh, once you have the announcement of general mobilization, it takes about six weeks. It was taking about six weeks for each country to bring its troops through uh, the railroad networks, through uh, make them have them ready to go to war. So the time lag then meant that there was uncertainty in the middle: will there be war or not? If there is a, if the other side announces later than I have, uh, and so that's sort of used as a, a for example as a reason for information, uh, uh, asymmetric information, or what did, the, what did the, the Tsar think the likelihood of war is, or how much uh, What do the, the, uh, the Kaiser was thinking in Germany and so on. There could have been optimism as well on some parts. There was an ascending power, Germany, versus declining power, Britain, uh, there were uh, especially sort of like uh, uh, like uh, Neil Ferguson or Niall Ferguson argues that that was Britain's fault contrary to uh, the prevailing time at the time that were, uh, prevailing wisdom that it was uh, Germany that was responsible for this uh, and the fact that they were Germany was locked out of uh, of colonial conquests. Uh, Politicians and military leaders, benefit and cost posture probably was uh, likely. And of course identity, ethnic identity. Uh, At the beginning of the war uh, the crowds in Berlin were celebrating the beginning of war as well as they were in Paris and each one thought in two weeks they would be in each other's Capital, and that of course involved some optimism as well, right? As it as it turned out uh, at the time. So you can have, and you can add things, right? That uh, historians can add I, I don't think there is a single reason in most kinds of war, but all of them uh, can be. Uh, some of them can be work together and be synergis- synergistically working together because there are still. There are a lot of, uh, okay, I'm sorry that I'm going back too much. There, is, there are reasons for not going to work. It's costly, right? right? And yet you have it. How can you have it? Well, it's because you have multiple reasons that work often in, in practice. <laughs> right. So, let me summarize first, and before offering some remarks, so arming and wars are very expensive. Uh, And that can be addressed by economic approach, by the second way, thinking about the second way of making a living. And arming is the problem of commitment, Uh, limited by norms, moral beliefs, the state's monopoly of violence and other institutions. Fighting, you can have all sorts of asymmetric information, optimism, risk and increasing returns, commitment problems. (coughs) <coughs> the differential decision making of the benefits and costs and identity. Uh, now, are there any caveats, problems with this approach? It looks like uh, it can be illuminating, right? Is this uh, sort of something that uh, we are missing? Well, what we are thinking, this is based on uh, the approach is based on economic models that uh, assume that both parties, all the parties to possible arming and warfare know the outcomes and the probabilities over them are known by all. They are, and they, all of them know that the other now knows there is what is called common knowledge. Uh, but what if some com- outcomes are not conceivable? They're so-called unknown unknowns, and that sort of uh, happens a lot in both uh, any kind of modelling and thinking about uh, sort of the financial crisis. We assume what is called normal distributions everywhere, but often actual financial distributions have fat tails, and there are black swans things that happen that we. Nobody supposedly uh, thinks about what happens then. Well, during the Cold War, uh, there is uh, Daniel Ellsberg, who has a very nice book about. Uh, he was a nuclear war planner, actually, in RAND Corporation or something, and has revealed a lot of things that we came much closer to nuclear catastrophe than uh, sort of was revealed at the time or afterwards. Subsequently, uh, we didn't know, first of all, about the effects of fires induced by nuclear blasts that can have a lot of much bigger effects than we thought. Nuclear winter was not conceivable then. What is the phenomenon of nuclear winter that uh, it can affect the whole Earth and sort of uh, 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 even if it's uh, a nuclear war is uh, limited to uh, the Soviet Union and the U.S., so that we would be the whole Earth would go away. And there were things like, sort of, it came very close, there were many instances, like a Soviet submarine was uh, uh, about to launch nuclear missiles because it was being attacked with depth charges and had, uh, uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, then, what you have is some real risks are not conceivable and not estimated at all then, uh, then they can easily lead to outcome outcomes and warfare, and especially sort of things uh, that could not be predicted, the so-called fog of war. And the question is, what about the risk of nuclear war today? That actually there are many reasons that it might be even higher than it was during the Cold War, Precisely because we're not thinking about it. Nobody's thinking about it, or nobody, there are people thinking about it, but there is, it's not part of the, what, the wider knowledge that you had at the time in this. Okay, so that's sort of what I had to say. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coleskennesawedu slash econop.